I think it's interesting, and I don't know what it means, but we kind of get the idea that these were the most seven most significant churches in the area. But right close to Laodicea is the church at Colossae, which was a significant church and not mentioned in this list. And uh, I guess anybody can have their conclusion about why that is. But as I have understood this again, not only that, that God is creating a sequence here, talking about different stages of the church and different time periods of the church, that within these seven churches was every problem and every situation that churches would address. That these seven churches gave the full spectrum of what churches are going to deal with. That's why it's so necessary that we don't single out the one that is relevant to our time period, which would happen to be this one, the church in Laodicea. This one does very powerfully correspond to what's happening in the church today. But it also, the other six churches also had truth that was relevant for us. So within these seven churches, Jesus told a complete story. And we need to approach it that way, that each one of the messages in each church was meant for us today, not just this last one. Well, we begin by looking at the word Laodicea because it tells us so much about what we're going to be looking at tonight. The word Laos, which means people, the latter part of that, Decea, which means opinion or custom. So what we immediately get is that this was a town, this was a city, this was a church that was absolutely driven by men's opinions. And that's why I would tell you that this is so powerfully relevant to you and I today in the state of the church today. And you don't have to examine very long. You don't have to listen very long to recognize that what churches do, whether that be on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, or in ministry, the majority of what a church does in a world today is offer someone else their opinion. You know, you think about situations. If somebody were to come to you and say, What does the Bible say about demons? What are we largely going to have to offer them? We're going to have to offer them an opinion. What if someone comes to you and talks to you about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church? If you hadn't been taught, what would you have to offer them? An opinion. If somebody comes and they're they're addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever addiction they might have, and they come to you for help, what are you going to offer them? Because you've got a choice here. You can minister healing to them or you, can, or you can do a referral based on your best opinion of where they need to go, which is by far more likely to occur in the church today. We offer an opinion. We give them a referral. We, we send them to somebody that maybe can help them because we don't recognize within ourselves. We don't see within ourselves the capability that God has fully placed in us. And there's a reason for this. This isn't random. The minute that you stop teaching body, soul, and spirit. The minute that that leaves, when we vacate the premises of that teaching, then all we're left with, because we don't teach of a spiritual reality, we don't teach of a spiritual life, we don't speak of spiritual healing, of spiritual revelation, of spiritual truth. When we don't function in the spirit, all we're left with below that line is opinion. Knowledge, opinion because we don't have the ministry of the spirit. So when, when that teaching stopped, if people ask me, where did I get it? Well, it's interesting that I got it from Edwin Wilson. I got it from him. Well, he and Dale Kane were study partners. So the fact that when, when Dale came, I also got it from Dale, but they got it 
largely from the teachings of a guy named Robert Govett, who I think died in about 1850. Charles Spurgeon got it from Robert Govett. See, this isn't new teaching. This was prevalent teaching. It has now been forgotten teaching. When, and we're going to see in a minute when Jesus tells them that you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Well, there's something about that, about the statement of being lukewarm. Because if he had said they were cold, that means that they probably had never heard the truth, that they had never experienced anything. They were cold because they'd never heard truth. Nothing had ever been ignited in them. What was required for them to be lukewarm? They either had to be hot and cold added, which is what happened here, or cold and warm added. But the reality of being lukewarm is that they were basically useless. Now we're in a situation now, the church now has been so far removed from this teaching, they don't remember it ever even being taught. You know, some of us remember it as stories we heard. Maybe a few have actually lived it here. I think I've told you years ago when my cousin Sylvia passed away, they brought her back to Loveland to bury her and they asked me to do the, the graveside service. Her brother's name is Ben. And when I, I hadn't seen him in years, but the minute that he heard that I was a pastor here, he started telling me about the great revivals that were here and the move of the Holy Spirit in this church. That's all he wanted to talk about. It's not that we haven't been taught. It's not that we weren't once hot, but the minute that you remove the teaching of the Holy Spirit and teaching of the, of the reality that we are a spiritual being, what you're doing is you're adding a lot of cold to what once was hot. And that's where most churches are. But it's been so long now, it's not teaching that they have missed, it's teaching that they've never heard of. As I teach in, in the different places where I'm asked, when I start teaching this, the, the answer is always the same. I can't believe we've never heard this. Can't believe we've never seen this. So Laodicea and its great trepidation was that it was a city and a church built on opinions and built on customs. It was a very wealthy city, had a larger than usual Jewish population, but their wealth was based on the excellence of the wool that was raised there and produced there. But that wealth, the, the, that's the city of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. And I guess even in that day, the government would come and help rebuild the city. But the people of Laodicea said, we, we want no help. We're going to build it ourselves out of the wealth that was held within this city. But what happened to them in the process of gaining this wealth? What's happened to us? What's happened to the church today as the church has moved in to a place of wealth? Yeah, you don't need faith anymore. You're not poor in spirit anymore because I don't need to be poor in spirit anymore because if I want something done, I simply gather the resources that are supposed to be here, think I know what God wants us to do, I gather the resources and we just go out and get busy. Well, their success in the church in Laodicea, their wealth, caused them to be self-sufficient and self-reliant, and they had no need of God. Became very, very evident. Again, you can look, search, compare. But one of the relevant truths of this is that we too, when we see ourselves, and we'll get to this in just a minute, when we see ourselves in any way other than what God shows us, then we too will become self-sufficient and self-reliant and have no need of God. We can simply trust the resources that we have. Another unusual characteristic of the city of Laodicea was that their great weakness of all the things that they had, the wealth, 
they were very short of a water supply. And so the water came via aqueduct. I can't remember how many miles. I think it was like six miles or so that this water was in this aqueduct. So what temperature do you think the water arrived in the city? Yeah, lukewarm. I don't care how cool it was when it was put in the aqueduct. That exposure to the sun when it got to the city was lukewarm and fairly putrid, according to what was written. So every enemy knew how to attack them. What would they do? Cut off the water supply and just sit and wait. So the people of Laodicea recognized this weakness. And so they began with every enemy, they began to negotiate away the conflict instead of going to battle about anything. Compromise. Had to compromise because they couldn't make it without the water. So instead of fighting over anything, they compromised over everything. Does that sound relevant? What does new water mean to us? Why do we talk about this? In Jeremiah, God gives this beautiful picture of Israel and says, I I just wish for Israel that you would be as the clay with a potter and that you would let, in his message, I wish you would let me shape you according to what I have in mind. And he's longing for Israel to be as flexible, pliable as that clay so that how they would end would be according to what the potter had in his mind. If you're going to shape something, what is required every time? You've got to have water and there has to be a fresh supply of water all the time. We as a church have to have that newness of water all the time. It is intimacy. It's what makes us pliable before God. It's what allows us to recognize how dependent we are on him. It's what gives us that connection with him that allows him to shape us and mold us by the actions that he takes. And it is interesting. I love the picture because for a potter, there are times when he has to squeeze and we feel the pressure in in how he forms us. And there's times when he has to relax his hands so that it will expand. But everything that's done, is done by a model, a useful model that's held in the potter's mind. We're only useful as long as we're shaped according to what he desired us to look like. We can try to shape ourselves into something that looks useful and we won't be of any use at all. But I want to tell you, most churches today have learned to compromise rather than stand and fight. Because what would fighting mean? I'd lose my supply. If I stand and say difficult things, If I preach difficult truth, if I say things that would upset people, then always the possibility is that my standing and fighting will cause me to lose the supply that I need. So what what do we do? We do what they did. We compromise. We compromise on the truth that we teach. We compromise on the witness, feel like we're supposed to have. It now seems like a small thing. But it wasn't a small thing to take the sign down off this church. That wasn't a small thing. By the grace of the people who go to church here is what made it a small thing. Because in most places, it would have been a battle royal. Why was it not a bigger thing? Because the heart behind it, the truth behind it, the teaching of unity that God has asked us of us, that we would be one, allows us to make that kind of a step and say, I can show you in the truth of God that that is the right thing to do. I don't care how difficult, I don't care the the questions that it might raise. And I get asked a lot and I love the questions because I love to tell them. I love showing them the scripture, telling them this is the scripture that we lean on, that we, that we're, we base this on. John 17, verse 20, when Jesus began to pray that we would be one. How does that do that? 
when you automatically and instantly divide yourself according to a sign that you put over the door. I love sharing that. I certainly don't mind telling it. So this water supply was their source of life. And so that it was threatened. And so they compromised everything away. Let's read about the church in Laodicea, beginning with Revelations 3, beginning with verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou may be rich and white raiment that thou may be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even also as I overcame, and I'm set down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So again, there's not a lot of confusion in what Jesus is trying to explain. He tells them that he is the amen. I am the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So he announces, I am the amen. I am the so be it. I am the pronunciation of the amen to the things of God. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. All the promises of God. And you can look at Jesus' life and say, look at my life and recognize the so be it, that I will be the fulfillment of these promises. That you can look at my life and recognize I am the amen to whatever God said. I am the evidence that what God said is true. Every promise fulfilled in me, I am the amen. He says, I am the faithful and true witness, which stands in sharp contrast to the Laodiceans who were neither faithful nor true. He also says he's the beginning of the creation. That word beginning is not sequential. He doesn't say I'm the first thing created. He says I am source. I am the well from which all creation flowed. He's not saying I'm, the, I'm, I'm not the first thing. He said everything. I am the beginning of it all. The beginning of the creation of God. So we know that, that those things are fulfilled in him. The, the heart of the father is now expressed in the life of his son. Think about that statement for just a second. The heart of the father is now expressed in the life of his son. How many of us will strap on that testimony? Because that's absolutely true of each one of us. The heart of the father should be expressed in us by the life that we live as his children. Look at us and see what the father is like. That shouldn't terrify us, shouldn't bother us. We shouldn't hesitate to say that to anyone You want to know what God is like? Look at me. Not bragging, not in boldness, not in self-edification, but in the reality that if I have, if I'm functioning the way God designed us to live within the kingdom of God, you can look at me. You can look at believers and feel and understand the expressed image of God. What does he say that he knows about this church? Know your work. 
I know you're not cold or hot. He said, I wish you were. I wish you were either. But because you're lukewarm and you're not cold or hot, he said, I spew you out of my mouth. And we've heard this preached so many times. We know that that word means vomit. As we said earlier, this picture of lukewarm was very relevant to these people because this is the way the water came to them. The relevant truth to this and, and the warning that he's saying, this is what I know about you about being lukewarm. In a spiritual sense, being lukewarm is a picture of indifference and compromise. You don't have the heart to live against God and you don't have the heart to live with him. It's just a place in, that we find in the middle that's filled with indifference and compromise. Being lukewarm tries to play the middle. Now think about this for just a second. How many pastors stand in the pulpit trying to play the middle? Most. They have to. They have to try to please the people who they think hired them, who keep them there. I can't upset them because what it would upset so many things. So the outcome is they try to play the middle with very little understanding and a great deal of a lack of conviction. With this being the church in Laodicea, they probably once, because there's evidence that this church was great at one point. There, I mean, there's a lot of historical facts about this church that aren't recorded in this, that are in other documents. And we know that there were conferences held here. We know that this church was a church of real Christian leadership at one time. So we recognize lukewarm here was probably they were once hot and something has happened to make them cold. What was it? Money. It was wealth. Nothing like money to shut down what God's doing. Sounds strange, doesn't it? That's why I went around here. I, you, if you've had this contact with me lately, what you've heard from me is I don't want you to be generous. What would generous do? Kill the work of God. I don't want you to be generous. I want you to be obedient. It's a huge difference. It allows what God has given us. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with having those resources. But if I think for a second that I can in any way use those resources against to establish a plan that is formed in my head, the outcome will be the destruction of what God's doing and it will happen every single time. The coal that was added here was that they became wealthy and they became self-sufficient. They really didn't have need of anyone. And he's fixed to say that very specifically. So the church of Laodicea exemplifies empty religion, but huge egos. The church today, empty religion, but huge egos. Verse 17 because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And you know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The church in Laodicea lacked a sense of spiritual poverty. This is an interesting tension in the teaching. What begins to happen if we ever see ourselves as spiritually rich? If I see myself as spiritually rich, the pride will cause me. To, what does the word pride even tell us? Who are you looking at? You're looking at me. The need for spiritual poverty is what's necessary so that we will continually recognize that without somebody else, I remain poor. Only with somebody do I remain rich. The spiritual poverty is what keeps us connected to the one who is the source of everything that we need, everything that we have. That's the connection. If we lack that connection, if we ever think we've arrived, and I mean, he pronounces this over the church. It's not even a maybe. He said, they looked once at themselves and said, we're rich. They looked at themselves again and said, we're wealthy. They looked at themselves a third time and said, we need nothing. So they lacked the very essence of Matthew chapter five, verse three. We know it well. When Jesus said, it's imperative for us in the kingdom of God 
when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're blessed when you recognize. Because what will the poor do? The poor will recognize. If I don't want to be poor, I have to trust somebody who's rich. If I think I'm rich, I don't have to trust anyone. I can trust myself. So the church today, the relevant truth that we can recognize immediately right now is that the church today has lost the reality of poor in spirit and has therefore found that we have really no need of God. We simply need our, sources, our resources to fulfill what we think God wants us to do. And this is probably the most evident. I share this often, but it to me is one of the most evident things is when we start grading a, a church service on how good the message was and how good the music was. Had a great Sunday because the message was good and the music was good. What is that saying that we're measuring here? We're measuring what I'm able to do and what Jay's able and the, and the team's able to do up here. We're measuring how effective things were based on those two things. And like how awful. If we didn't come and enter into the presence of God, what was the point in the first place? The only way we have a good service is if we enter into the presence of God. That's it. So the people who come and choose to just sit back and say, well, I'm at church, they're probably not going to have a very good time. They may be able to say, well, it was a good message and the music was good. Or they may say the, the message was awful and the music was terrible. But the people who come and just come to, to fulfill the reality of I've been in church are probably not going to be very satisfied because they did not enter into his presence. Anybody who comes in. Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, anytime we enter in, we should come in anticipation of entering into the presence of God. You do not need to come for an hour and let me talk. If there's not truth revealed by the Holy Spirit, this is a pointless endeavor. This ought to be life changing. Small ways, incremental ways as we grow, as we're in process. But every time we come, we ought to encounter the reality of God and let him build in us what if had we not been here, we could not have gotten. We come because we gain fellowship from one another because this is what God has blessed us to do. There's the reality of God's presence here in the preaching and the teaching and the fellowship and what happens after we're dismissed. Every bit of it is designed to allow us to encounter the presence of God. Whether I'm standing talking to one of you and just being blessed by something you're telling me or praying with you or whatever happens, we're entering into the presence of God. The church here in Laodicea had no need of the presence of God. They had everything that they need. The sad truth of seeing ourselves as rich is that we won't see ourselves as poor. And he said, the sad part is, this is your conclusion. You're rich, you're wealthy, you have added to your goods, you have need of nothing. That is your conclusion. And what that conclusion has caused you to do is to have a complete, unreal, delusional perspective of who you really are. And as long as you believe that, you will never see yourself. And then he begins to tell them, you know, this is who you really are. He says, you are wretched. You are spiritually miserable. You are spiritually poor. You are spiritually blind. And you are spiritually naked. And they don't have a clue that that's what's really going on the church today. See themselves as great. See themselves as blowing and going and watching this stuff happen and have no conceptual reality that they are poor in spirit, that they are lacking 
that the conclusions that they would say about themselves is, man, things are really going well. If I removed a few churches that kind of have built names for themselves over the last few years, if I had permission to remove the names of about five churches in the area, what would you say is the trajectory of the church moving into the future? How's it going? Is it gaining ground and going uphill, getting better? Or do we see it dying? I was at a church recently doing a funeral and one of the guys that was sitting there had been in that church for a long time and he's, he said 10 years ago, this, this church, the income of this church was this much and he gave the number, he says, and now it's this and he said, it was a third. And he says, and we have no hope that it's gonna turn around. That, that was one church, that's the heart of most. Many wondering how long we can do this. They're moving along. It can take you to First Baptist churches over a half a dozen communities or a dozen communities right now and they've got congregations that are under 30 or 40 trying their best to hang on. The church is in trouble and they refuse to take a look and ask themselves why. Jesus didn't offer an opinion. He said there, you are miserable. You are poor. Again, it wasn't his opinion. It was the truth. This church so strongly represents the modern church, which has learned to trust with their natural eye and what their natural eye can see and continue to be untouched by the gospel and the riches that are there for them to take. This is a personal commentary. I have a few opportunities each year to go and share and teach Bible studies in places where this is pretty new. And for the most part, for the three or four days or the weeks that I teach it, you watch people become very excited. Excited that they're gaining, they're seeing what they've never seen before. Fascinated by the truth of it. What's generally the outcome for most of those people who gained excitement because of the knowledge of, of, of learning something new, what's the outcome of most of those people? They go back, again, I need to say this carefully. They go back to the churches where they were, settle into what they've always heard, and ultimately remain unchanged and unmoved even though they have received revelation. It's amazing. And I watch them. Some I know personally, I, I watch them and recognize that they have had an encounter and an opportunity to say to God that I am ready, willing in this point to step into that life in the spirit that they've now been introduced to. And I watch them when they say no to it, I watch what happens to them because they seem like they run frantically in the other direction. They have an opportunity. They, it was in their hands. It was in their hearts. And for whatever circumstance, for whatever reason, whatever situation happened, they said no to it and they go back, to, but they can't settle in well anymore to the stuff that they once had just settled into. It doesn't fit very well anymore. You know, when I went to De Leon, this was one of those churches that they looked at me because I can't make the face, but it's like everything I said, they were looking at me kind of cockeyed saying, what? Who is this guy? And what in the world is he trying to teach us? But when they got it, I get text messages from them regularly saying, wow, we just saw again what you taught us in real life. We just saw it happen again in somebody's testimony and somebody's life changed and somebody having an encounter. We just saw it again. We just heard it again. We just saw this testimony again. But it's been way too long ago. I can't even remember much what it was. But one of the ladies in the church said, they sent me a video of a guy that was diagnosed with cancer He's gone to church 
and expecting nothing out of his diagnosis. He's kind of planning on what's going on. And somebody prays for him prophetically. And then he begins to see it. And he recognizes that he's been healed. And they sent that to me and said, this is what we're seeing happen in this church. Every now and then somebody will get it. Every now and then somebody will bite and say, I get it. But for the most part, you can speak truth to people and you can watch them nod their heads and you can, they'll ask you questions. And so you know that they're connecting with what you say. And when the teaching is over, it's like you get right back. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you can gain it and be so unchanged by it. That is by far more the norm. So they, they got it. But when you don't see yourself correctly, when you don't see yourself the way God sees you, then the tendency is going to be to say, well, I'm okay in what I'm doing. There's no need for real change. In verse 18, Jesus tells them clearly what they need to do to change this story, for you to see yourself correctly, to be altered by the fact that I'm telling you, I'm announcing to you that you are wretched. I'm announcing to you that you are miserable. I'm announcing to you that you are spiritually blind, that you're spiritually naked, that you're spiritually poor. I'm announcing that to you. You either accept what I'm telling you and change, or you continue to see yourself the way that you do, rich, increasing in goods, having need of nothing. You get to choose in this moment, which way are you going to go? And Jesus begins to encourage him. I encourage you to do this. I counsel you to buy gold of me, tried in the fire, that you may be rich. And white raiment, buy white raiment, that you may be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with salve that you may actually see. Well, I want to tell you that is a remedy for the church today. That is a remedy for the Christian church today. What does it mean to buy this gold tried by the fire? He says, I want you, I want you to buy of me. Strange phrasing. But he's saying the change in the Laodiceans had to begin with the understanding that they were spiritually poor. If we know we're spiritually poor, then the only place where we can go to buy is from him. The only place where we can go to get the provision is from him because I don't have the resources in my hand. I'm going to have to go to somebody who's going to give it freely. I'm going to have to go to somebody who's already promised that the, that the provision would be mine. So as long as we trust religion, the church, the pastor, we will try to clothe ourselves in our righteousness instead of his. The gold refined by fire is receive the pure, righteous covering that he gives that will cause us to be clothed and no longer in shame. Perfect recipe, clothed in his righteousness. Again, you've heard me say it over and over. What's required for me to be clothed in his righteousness? I have to what? I have to die. I have to die. I have to recognize my, the state of my spiritual condition so that I will receive from him. Again, this is such foundational teaching that has just been lost. Why? His righteousness. Because God's standard for us is right up here. It includes words like righteous and perfect. That's God's standard. What are the chances that in and of ourselves we're going to meet that standard? Not. So what do we expect God to do? This is our typical teaching. What have we, what have we said in the name of grace? God will lower his standard and he'll take us the way we are. God will not take you the way you are. He will love you the way you are. He will not receive you the way you are. 
You don't say that very often. You, like, I don't like that. What do you mean God won't take me the way that I am? He's a loving God. He's a kind God. Surely he will take me the way that I am. He will not take you the way that you are. Because what would it require him to do? What would he have to take? He would have to take our sin. He would have to take our filthiness. He would have to take our rudeness, our cross. He would have to take all of it. And he says, I will not take you. I will take the righteousness of my son. If you're willing to take the righteousness of my son and let your righteousness die, if you're willing to, to take on his righteousness, then you immediately meet my standard. Because the only one who can meet my standard is my son. And the minute I see my son in you, you will have met the standard. As long as you think you're okay and trying to meet the standard of God, trying to be what we think he's supposed to be, he will not accept us in those terms. And that, that's not only individually, that's collectively as a church. He will not take us the way we are. He loves us the way we are, but he will not receive us that way. He paid too high a price to deal with my sin. Let those phrases penetrate. He became sin who knew no sin. Why? That we might receive the righteousness of God. He had to become that sin so that sin had a place to go and die so that his righteousness could live in its place. Those are phrases that we toss around that have deep, deep, profound meaning. And we've lost the heart of them because we keep telling ourselves we're okay. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. It's God's most serious rebuke when he leaves a man alone. When he leaves a person alone, that is his most serious rebuke. Hope and pray he never leaves you alone. He said, be zealot and repent. Change your mind. You have an opportunity right now to change your mind. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So he's saying, I want you to be able. If you're inside this door, what's it going to require for you to come answer it? I'm knocking. What, what's your part in being able to come and answer it? What, do you, what has to happen first? You have to hear that I'm there. You will not come to the door if you don't hear me knocking. So he's telling him, I have to restore in you this ability to hear me, this ability to see me. I have to restore in you this connection between us because that connection currently does not exist. I stand at the door and I knock. The church of, of Laodicea is the church of the shut out Jesus. Who are we today? The church, the modern church of today is the church of the shut out Holy Spirit. We'll invite Jesus. Just don't want to invite the Holy Spirit. So why does he stand at the door and knock? It creates a great mystery. Why does he stand outside? Why didn't he just force his way in? Why does he knock? Why does he wait? Because the occupant must open the door. That's an every single time. We read these things about, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave in that moment an absolute, complete, worldwide, every person invitation. Why then is everyone not saved? Because in John one, it says, and to those who will receive, he gives them the power to become the sons of God. In Acts chapters one, two, and three, he gives the Holy Spirit to everyone who believes. What still has to happen, he has to be received because it, it is always the requirement of the occupant to open the door so that if something is going to be received. I preached not too long ago 
on the poor choice of words when we say we've accepted Jesus as our Savior. What does that word accept infer? I've measured him, I've weighed him, I find him acceptable. The message of God, the words that he consistently used, you can look through the scripture and you'll never find the word accept in there that we can accept him. It's always receive him. That's the word that he uses over and over and over. Many will hear, many will hear the knock. Many will hear that tug of the Holy Spirit that says, you'll never be right without me. You'll never be able to be obedient until you hear me. You'll never accept, see the full provision of God and the blessings of God until you receive me. And many will hear the knock. Some won't even hear it. Many will hear it and absolutely, very strangely refuse to go open the door. Why would we ever not open the door? Because we're very content with what's happening in the house right now. The knock is a distraction because I'm perfectly satisfied with what's going on. He says, I will come unto you. Anyone who overcomes... It's a glorious promise. Our choice becomes his presence. He identifies here what he wants. He wants intimacy. Jesus announces a promised reward to those who overcome. Parker's been speaking on Sunday night, the last two Sunday nights about intimacy. It was profound for me that first time that he preached two weeks ago when he's talking about where faith grows because our mindset says, including mine, until he said it, The mindset was that faith grows by every circumstance that we have that gets a little harder and a little harder. And because of the the changing circumstances, our faith grows. And I believe that until he said it. No, faith grows in intimacy. My faith in Jan doesn't grow because of the things that we've walked through. My faith in Jan grows because of the intimacy we share. You let the intimacy get broken, our faith in each other will change. Faith grows in intimacy. He's calling for it here. He's calling this church to it. He's using very, very intimate personal terms. So he announces this promised reward that he's going to give them in verse 21. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. What's the promise here? He's saying, if you overcome, if you recognize the truth of what I'm telling you about being spiritually poor so that you can be spiritually rich. If you understand where you really are in the state of your condition so that upon that recognition, you will have a heart for something else. If you overcome, if you're able to to, to do that, I will let you sit with me on my throne. What's the promise there? He's saying, I did it. I overcame and I get to sit with my father in heaven. Where is this throne that we get to join him? When's this promise fulfilled? When do we get to share in him being royalty? when he's ruling and reigning in the millennial reign. He's saying to those who overcome, to those who actually can make this change, you will have a place with me in my kingdom and you will sit in a place of royalty. Just as I did by overcoming with my father. He's making us a promise here. And it's a profound one that in the millennial reign that would be coming after this age, after the day of the Laodiceans, the next thing that would happen would be his kingdom. For those of you who will actually understand this, accept this, grasp this, then I will be able to take you into that kingdom and not only let you exist there as believers, I will let you share within the royal throne. This promise has been made several different places within the scripture, but he's telling them here, you will participate and you will sit with me upon that throne. Join heirs. Exactly right. So Jesus ends by giving the same exhortation that he's given to all the other churches. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. 
Why does he end with that? Seven times now, why does he end with that? Because no matter what the condition is he's describing, whether in Sardis or Philadelphia, where he had very little to say wrong, in the church of Philadelphia, he didn't say anything wrong with them. To the Laodiceans, which is the worst of the seven, every one of them, he says, for your story to be fulfilled, for, for your story to be complete, you have to hear what the Spirit says. Any other conclusion that you draw about you, where you stand, how well are we doing, all of those things hinge and you letting the Spirit tell you the truth. Because every conclusion that you're going to draw about yourselves is going to be wrong. This is a very practical thing, but one of the more difficult things that we face in church watching a budget, money, flex from having to not having. And I want to tell you, it's so tempting, so tempting to begin to pare down the story, the ministry and anticipation that God's provision is not going to be what it's supposed to be. Such a temptation to begin to adjust because we draw conclusions instead of saying, no, I'm obedient. I'm doing what we're supposed to do. It would be very easy to fix financial stuff here if I resigned. I would just, I mean, immediately things would kind of line up and say, oh, there's enough money now. What's the problem with that? To do that, I have to become totally disobedient to the vision he gave me because I'm not here because of the size of the money. I'm here because standing right here on December 27, 2006, I'm standing in that spot right there when I turned and had that vision that I'm supposed to be the pastor here. So for that story to change for any reason is for me to deny what God has said because some practical reality says that it has to be changed. We better be careful when we start making those kind of compromises. We begin to make those kind of changes. We all have to deal with them. And I've been amazed for nine years now when things didn't seem like they were gonna work that they've worked time and time and time again. So I don't have any expectation other than that. You're dismissed. Thank you.